Chapter 10 of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter 10 A Tragedy of Gowns. From husbands in general, and from oogly German husbands in particular, may Hyman defend me. Never again will I attempt to select echt Amerikanisch clothes for a woman who must not weary her young husband. But how was I to know that the harmless little shopping expedition would resolve itself into a domestic tragedy, with Herr Nurlanger as the villain, Frau Nurlanger as the persecuted heroine, and I as... What is it in tragedy that corresponds to the innocent bystander in real life? That would be my role. The purchasing of the clothes was a real joy. Next to buying pretty things for myself, there is nothing I like better than choosing them for someone else. And when that someone else happens to be a fascinating little foreigner, who coos over the silken stuffs in a delightful mixture of German and English, and especially when that someone else must be made to look so charming that she will astonish her oogly husband, then does the selecting of those pretty things cease to be a task and become an art. It was to be a complete surprise to Herr Nerlanger. He was to know nothing of it until everything was finished, and Frau Nerlanger, dressed in the prettiest of the pretty Americanish gowns, was ready to astound him when he should come home from the office of the vast plant where he solved engineering problems. "'From my own money I buy all this,' Frau Nerlanger confided to me with a gay little laugh of excitement as we started out. "'From Vienna it comes. Always I have given it at once to my husband, as a wife should.' Yesterday it came, but I said nothing, and when my husband said to me, Anna, did not the money come as usual today? It is time. I told a little lie, but a little one, is it not? Very amusing it was. Almost I did laugh. Nah, he will not be cross when he see how his wife like the Americanish ladies will look. He admires very much the ladies of America. Many times he has said so. I'll wager he has, the great ugly boar, I thought, in parenthesis. We'll show him, I said aloud. He won't know you. Such a lot of beautiful clothes as we can buy with all this money. Oh, dear Frau Nurlanger, it's going to be slathers of fun. I feel as excited about it as though it were a trousseau we were buying. So it is, she replied, a little shadow of sadness falling across the brightness of her face. I had no proper clothes when we were married, but nothing. You know perhaps my story. In America everyone knows everything. It is wonderful. When I ran away to marry Conrad Nurlanger, I had only the dress which I wore. Even that I borrowed from one of the upper servants, on a pretext, so that no one should recognize me. Ach Gott! I need not have worried. So. You see, it will be after all a trousseau. Why, oh why, should a woman with her graceful carriage and pretty vivacity have been cursed with such an ill-assorted lot of features? especially when certain boorish young husbands have expressed an admiration for pink-and-white effects in femininity. "'Never mind, Mr. Husband, I'll show yous,' I resolved as the elevator left us at the floor where waxen ladies in shining glass cases smiled amiably all the day. There must be no violent pinks or blues. Brown was too old. She was not young enough for black. Violet was too trying.' and so the gowns began to strew tables and chairs and racks, and still I shook my head, and Frau Nurlanger looked despairing, and the bepuffed and real Irish crocheted saleswoman began to develop a baleful gleam about the eyes. And then we found it. 
It was a case of love at first sight. The unimaginative would have called it gray. The thoughtless would have pronounced it pink. It was neither and both. A soft, rosily gray mixture of the two, like the sky that one sometimes sees at winter twilight, the pink of the sunset veiled by the gray of the snow clouds. It was of a supple, shining cloth, simple in cut, graceful in lines. There! We've found it! Let's pray that it will not require too much altering. But when it had been slipped over her head, we groaned at the inadequacy of her old-fashioned stays. There followed a flying visit to the department where hips were whisked out of sight in a jiffy, and where lines miraculously took the place of curves. Then came the gown once more, over the new stays this time. The effect was magical. The Irish crocheted saleswoman and I clasped hands and fell back in attitudes of admiration. Frau Nurlanger turned this way and that before the long mirror and chattered like a pleased child. Her adjectives grew into words of six syllables. She cooed over the soft shining stuff and little broken exclamations in French and German. Then came a straight and simple street suit of blue cloth, a lingerie gown of white, hats, shoes, and even a couple of limp satin petticoats. The day was gone before we could finish. I bullied them into promising the pinky-gray gown for the next afternoon. "'Such funs!' giggled Frau Lerlanger. "'And how it makes one tired! So kind you were to take this trouble for me. Me, I could never have warred with that Fraulein who served us. So haughty she was, nicked. But it is good again, pretty clothes to have. Pretty gowns I loaf. You also not?' "'Indeed, I do loaf em. But my money comes to me in a yellow pay envelope, and it is spent before it reaches me as a rule.' It doesn't leave much of a margin for general recklessness. A tiny sigh came from Frau Nurlanger. There will be little to give to Conrad this time. So much money they cost those clothes. But Conrad, he will not care when he sees the so beautiful dresses. Is it not so? Care? I cried with a great deal of bravado, although a tiny inner voice spake in doubt. Certainly not. How could he? Next day the boxes came and we smuggled them into my room. The unwrapping of the tissue paper folds was a ceremony. We reveled in the very crackle of it. I had scuttled home from the office as early as decency would permit, in order to have plenty of time for the dressing. It must be quite finished before Herr Nurlanger should arrive. Frau Nurlanger had purchased three tickets for the German theater, also as a surprise, and I was to accompany the happily surprised husband and the proud little wife of the new Americanish clothes. I coaxed her to let me do things to her hair. Usually she wore a stiff and ugly coiffure that could only be described as a chignon. I do not recollect ever having seen a chignon, but I know that it must look like that. I was thankful for my Irish deftness of fingers as I stepped back to view the result of my labors. The new arrangement of the hair gave her features a new softness and dignity. We came to the lacing of the stays with their exaggerated length. Aber! exclaimed Frau Nurlanger, not daring to laugh because of the strange snugness. Ach! and again! Aber to laugh it is. We had decided the prettiest of the new gowns must do honor to the occasion. This shade is called Ashes of Roses, I explained, as I slipped it over her head. Ashes of Roses, she echoed. How pretty, yes? But a little sad, too, is it not so? Like rosy hopes that have been withered. Ach, what a foolish talk. So now you will fasten it, please. A real trick it is to button such a dress. So sly they are, those fastenings. When all the sly fastenings were secure, I stood at gaze. Nose is shiny, I announced, searching in a drawer for chamois and powder. Frau Nurlanger raised an objecting hand. But Conrad does not approve of such things. He has said so. He has... 
You tell your Conrad that a chamois skin isn't half as objectionable as a shiny one. Come here and let me dust this over your nose and chin, while I breathe a prayer of thanks that I have no overzealous husband near to forbid me the use of a bit of powder. There, if I says it meself as shouldn't, ye is our a credit to me, me darlint. You are satisfied? There is not one small thing awry? Ach, how we shall laugh at Conrad's face. Satisfied? I'd kiss you if I weren't afraid that I should mush you up. You're not the same woman. You look like a girl, and so pretty. Now skedaddle into your own rooms, but don't you dare to sit down for a moment. I'm going down to get Frau Knopf before your husband arrives. But is there then time? inquired Frau Nurlanger. He should be here now. I'll bring her up in a jiffy, just for one peep. She won't know you. Her face will be a treat. Don't touch your hair, it's quite perfect. And for John's sake, don't twist around to look at yourself in the back or something will burst. I know it will. I'll be back in a minute. Now run. The slender, graceful figure disappeared with a gay little laugh, and I flew downstairs for Frau Knopf. She was discovered with a spoon in one hand and a spluttering saucepan in the other. I detached her from them, clasped her big, capable red hands, and dragged her up the stairs, explaining as I went. Now don't fuss about that supper. Let em wait. You must see her before her Nurlanger comes home. He's due any minute. She looks like a girl, so young, and actually pretty, and her figure, divine. Funny what a difference a decent pair of corsets and a gown and some puffs will make, hm? Frau Knopf was panting as I pulled her after me in swift eagerness. Between puffs she brought out exclamations of surprise and unbelief such as, Omoglik, puff puff, aber wunderbar, puff puff. We stopped before Frau Nurlanger's door. I struck a dramatic pose. Prepare, I cried grandly, and threw open the door with a bang. Crouched against the wall at a far corner of the room was Frau Nurlanger. Her hands were clasped over her breast, and her eyes were dilated as though she had been running. In the center of the room stood Conrad Nurlanger, and on his oogly face was the very oogliest look that I have ever seen on a man. He glanced at us as we stood transfixed in the doorway, and laughed a short, sneering laugh that was like a stinging blow on the cheek. So, he said, and I would not have believed that men really said so in that way outside of a melodrama. So, you're in the little surprise, yes? You carry your meddling outside of your newspaper work, eh? I leave behind me an old wife in the morning, and in the evening, presto, I find a young bride. Wonderful, but wonderful. He laughed an unmusical and mirthless laugh. But don't you like it? I asked, like a simpleton. Frau Nurlanger seemed to shrink before our very eyes, so that the pretty gown hung in limp folds about her. I stared fascinated at Conrad Nurlanger's cruel face with its little eyes that were too close together, and its chin that curved in below the mouth and out again so grotesquely. Like it, sneered Conrad Nurlanger. For a young girl, yes. But how useless this belated trousseau. What a waste of good money. For see, a young wife I do not want. Young women one can have in plenty, always. But I have an old woman married, and for an old woman the gowns need be few, eh, Frau Orm? And you too, Frau Knopf? Frau Knopf, crimson and staring, was dumb. There came a little shivering moan from the figure crouched in the corner, and Frau Nurlanger, her face queerly withered and ashen, crumpled slowly in a little heap on the floor and buried her shamed head in her arms. Conrad Nurlanger turned to his wife, the black look on his face growing blacker. "'Come, get up, Anna,' he ordered in German. "'These heroics become not a woman of your years. And, too, you must not ruin the so costly gown that will be returned to-morrow.' 
Frau Nurlanger's white face was lifted from the shelter of her arms. The stricken look was still upon it, but there was no cowering in her attitude now. Slowly she rose to her feet. I had not realized that she was so tall. "'The gown does not go back,' she said. "'So?' he snarled with a savage note in his voice. "'Now hear me. There shall be no more buying of gowns and fripperies. You hear? It is for the wife to come to the husband for the money, not for her to waste it wantonly on gowns like a creature of the streets. You,' his voice was an insult, "'you, with your wrinkles and your faded eyes and a gown of—' he turned inquiringly toward me. "'How does one call it that color, Frau Orm?' There came a blur of tears to my eyes. It is called Ashes of Roses, I answered. Ashes of Roses. Conrad Nurlanger threw back his head and laughed a laugh as stinging as a whiplash. Ashes of Roses. So, it is well named. For my dear wife it is poetically fit, is it not so? For see, her roses are but withered ashes. Eh, Anna? Deliberately and in silence, Anna Nurlanger walked to the mirror and stood there, gazing at the woman in the glass. There was something dreadful and portentous about the calm and studied deliberation with which she critically viewed that reflection. She lifted her arms slowly and patted into place the locks that had become disarranged, turning her head from side to side to study the effect. Then she took from a drawer the bit of chamois skin that I had given her, and passed it lightly over her eyelids and cheeks, humming softly to herself the while. No music ever sounded so uncanny to my ears. The woman before the mirror looked at the woman in the mirror with a long, steady, measuring look. Then slowly and deliberately, the long, graceful folds of her lovely gown trailing behind her, she walked over to where her frowning husband stood. So might a queen have walked, head held high, gaze steady. She stopped within half a foot of him, her eyes level with his. For a long half-minute they stood thus, the faded blue eyes of the wife gazing into the sullen black eyes of the husband and his were the first to drop, for all the noble blood in Anna Nurlanger's veins, and all her long line of gently-bred ancestors were coming to her aid in dealing with her middle-class husband. "'You forget,' she said very slowly and distinctly, "'if this were Austria, instead of America, you would not forget. In Austria people of your class do not speak in this manner to those of my caste.' "'Unsen,' laughed Conrad Nurlanger, "'this is America.' Yes, said Anna Nurlanger, this is America, and in America all things are different. I see now that my people knew of what they spoke when they called me mad to think of wedding a clod of the people such as you. For a moment I thought that he was going to strike her. I think he would have if she had flinched, but she did not. Her head was held high and her eyes did not waver. I married you for love. It is most comical, is it not? With you I thought I should find peace and happiness and a rebirth of the intellect that was being smothered in the splendor and artificiality and the restrictions of my life there. Well, I was wrong, but wrong. Now hear me. Her voice was tense with passion. There will be gowns, as many and as rich as I choose. You have said many times that the ladies of America you admire. And see, I shall be also one of those so admired ladies. My money shall go for gowns for hats, for trifles of lace and velvet and fur. You shall learn that it is not a peasant woman whom you have married. This is America, the land of the free, my husband. And see, who is more of America than I? Who? She laughed a high little laugh and came over to me, taking my hands in her own. Dear girl, you must run quickly and dress, for this evening we shall go to the theatre. Oh, but you must. There shall be no unpleasantness, that I promise. My husband accompanies us, with joy. 
Is it not so, Conrad? With joy? So. Wildly I longed to decline, but I dared not, so I only nodded, for fear of the great lump in my throat, and taking Frau Knopf's hand I turned and fled with her. Frau Knopf was muttering, Du Hund! Du Umverstammer Hund du! in good Billingsgate German, and wiping her eyes with her apron. And I dressed with trembling fingers, because I dared not otherwise face the brave little Austrian, the plucky little aborigine who, with the donning of the new Americanish gown, had acquired some real Americanish nerve. End of chapter 10